Welcome everyone to Climate Now, a podcast that explores and explains the ideas, technologies, and the practical on-the-ground solutions that we'll need to address the global climate crisis and achieve a net zero future. I'm James Lawler, and if you like this episode, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, share it with your friends, or tell us what you think at contact at climatenow.com. Today in our interview segment, we're going to discuss grid energy storage, the different types of energy storage available, and if it's economically feasible for batteries to support a 100% renewable energy electricity grid. Our interview will be with Nate Blair, an engineer at the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, one of the premier energy storage research labs in the United States. But first, our news segment, this week in climate news. Today, to discuss what's going on in climate news, I'm joined by Darren Howe, staff manager of charging ops and product strategy at the autonomous electric vehicle company Cruise. Darren, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back, James. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to you, or rather, welcome back from Thanksgiving. Hope you had a good one. Likewise, likewise. What did you uh, What did you get up to? Oh, nothing much. Stayed local. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just spent some time at the beach, enjoying California. Mm-hmm. What about mm-hmm. yourself? Upstate New York. Um, warm weather, which should really? not be particularly surprising. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was so warm that I found myself on the New York New York State website looking at projections for the future climate in New York. And they have a a sort of dispiriting graphic that shows the state of New York migrating south over the next several decades. And I think that under sort of a business as usual case by 2070 will be somewhere um, around the latitude of Georgia, basically southern Georgia. Oh, that's that's interesting. So I, yeah. I know most climate maps show kind of a heat map of the U.S., but is this a graphic that shows different states actually moving yes. in time or in space? That's that's pretty fun, actually. Yeah, it shows New York. I hate to start off this week in climate news with such doom and gloom. Before. Well, this this is a good segue to your little point about Qatar and how the temperatures yes last. yes <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so one of the one of the items in the news obviously is soccer or football. World Cup kicked off in 90 plus degree Fahrenheit temperatures. It's interesting since Qatar won its bid for the World Cup, which was 12 years ago, they've been planning for this. The average annual temperature in Qatar has increased around one degree Celsius or almost two degrees Fahrenheit, according to the journal Nature in a story that was just published the other day. You know, a lot of people say climate change is an existential risk. I'm probably not as alarmist. I don't think we're going to go extinct, but there's definitely going to be a very severe degradation in quality of life if we don't address it. Uh, And if you think about the issue with Qatar, you know, if average temperature is rising two degrees, that means that the peak temperatures, right, because we're talking about average here, are actually going to be much higher than that. And this is already a desert, and they've been focusing on spending and constructing and trying to shift the economy to a more kind of tech-forward future. But if temperatures are fluctuating, getting higher and higher, those are days when construction workers can't go out and build stuff, right? Just just to use a simple example, you mentioned athletics, talking about construction. So that's going to have a significant impact on just economic growth throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. Another interesting article that we picked out this week is about the transformation of gas stations and what the future holds for the 
automobile fueling business, whether you're thinking about gas or electricity. David Ferris had an article in Politico about this recently titled The Gas Station's Hidden Battle to Survive. Yeah, I'm actually really interested in this article because as you know, this is my bread and butter, what I deal with every day. Mm -hmm. But essentially what uh, David Ferris was mentioning was the complex dynamics between the utility industry and the gas station industry and how they're actually quite upset with each other these days. So mm -hmm. for a bit of context, there is a ton of money on the line. Uh, in Biden's uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, they allocated $7.5 billion to help fund the buildout of EV charging infrastructure. And obviously, that's not nowhere near enough to what we need, but it's an important and substantive step. And that's contemplated to, to build something in the order of 500,000 fast chargers, right? I don't recall the exact number, but that sounds right about the right okay. order of magnitude. Yeah. Okay. In addition to the dollars on the line, we're at this massive inflection point today, which is who gets to fuel the transportation system of tomorrow. Historically, it's been oil majors and gas stations, and now utilities want in. Mm -hmm. And both of these industries uh, have market sizes that are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So, th so this is a really tense situation here. One of the reasons there's this huge tension between these two industries is they've developed in very different ways. So the gas market is extremely transparent and hyper-competitive. Any driver can go and say, hey, that store across the street is five cents lower than this one over here. Maybe I'll go to that one. Uh, so the drivers know exactly what they're getting at every single location. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with the electricity market. How many people can actually tell you how much they're paying per kilowatt hour of electricity at their home? Like. Mm -hmm. I can't. I have no idea what it is. Yeah. It's extremely opaque. And part of the reason is because it's very monopolistic. When the electricity system was being built out, it didn't make sense to have multiple parties trying to send separate wires to your house. So you needed a bit of a regulatory landscape for it. Mm -hmm. What has happened then is each utility gets to set a certain rate for you, and they're the only one that provides it. And then they recover the expense that they incurred by charging you your electricity tariff. But gas stations see it as, well, if everything's going to be electric and we no longer sell fuel, yeah. what is what are we in the business of? Right, um, right. And maybe playing off of what I just mentioned about the different ways the industry is developed, um, this is also a source of tension. Because the way utilities make money, as I mentioned before, is they spend a certain amount of capital. Mm -hmm. And then the public utility commissions will say, okay, based on that, we'll, we'll guarantee you a certain profit margin. Mm. So gas station operators are concerned that if they're competing with utilities selling EV charging, mm -hmm. utilities can undercut them by selling at rock bottom prices because they have a guaranteed rate of return that they can make up with retail electricity rates. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the crux of the issue, isn't it? It's like they're they're playing by different rules. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. Right. So on a related note, Tesla just recently made its technical specifications and design specifications for its charger public and has recommended that, that this be the North American, what is it? North American Charging Standard or NACS, N-A-C-S. North American Charging Standard. So, so they make the point in this press release, which you can find on their website, that the ch Tesla charging network is about you know 60% larger than all the other networks combined. That its charger is, you know, mechanically the, the the simplest, and that it involves the fewest moving parts. It doesn't rely on special communication between the charging device and the autom and the car. So, Tesla is making the argument that everyone should now adopt this charging standard. Darren, you were involved at Tesla um, in designing that whole system. What what do you make of this? 
I think this has been a very controversial thing in the EV industry because yes, it's true that Tesla is a technically superior product and operationally superior product, but you know, we have all this momentum behind the the CCS standard, the combined charging system standard, which mm-hmm. is prevalent in Europe. There's a different variation of it in North America, and all the OEMs have basically adopted the CCS standard by this point. OEM like GM, Ford, original equipment manufacturer. Some people have accused Tesla of being somewhat hypocritical, saying, "Hey, why didn't you release the standard earlier? Mm-hmm. Now you're j- the only reason you're doing this, frankly, is because Biden's re- uh, climate and infrastructure bills." have basically allocated funding that is available only if your charging station can charge more than one brand of vehicle. Mm. So for Tesla, there is an incentive to have someone else adopt that so that they can tap into Mm. those funds. Interesting. What's interesting is there is one startup that is very keen on doing this. It's called Aptera. They make this very like small solar powered, super efficient uh, vehicle that has basically said, yes, they're going to adopt it. So it'll be interesting to see whether that alone is enough for Tesla to tap into those credits. You know, with all this talk of electrification, one of the things that the world will need a whole lot more of is copper. And there's some interesting news this week on um, some developments in the copper mining industry. I'm not an expert in mining, but I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, So let's take a step back and ask why is copper important? Yeah. Well, we were just talking about the electrification of transportation. And speaking of which, an EV requires two and a half times as much copper as an internal combustion engine vehicle. Uh, And that's just the transportation industry. Solar and offshore wind needs two to five times uh, more copper per megawatt of capacity than Mm. power generated using natural gas or coal. So all of this means that demand is going to skyrocket. So the challenge with this growing demand is that a new copper mine takes many years to bring online. I think uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says it takes 16 years on average to get a new copper mine built. However, we do have a lot of unprocessed copper ore sitting around because we had no economical way to extract it. Um, what happens is ore is mined and the easiest metal is extracted and anything that's too hard or expensive to convert to copper is just tossed aside as waste. And in the past decade, uh, they estimate that 43 million tons of copper have been mined, but never processed for this reason, which is worth more than $2 trillion at today's prices. Wow. So this is obviously a big economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. So a company called Jetty Resources has um, uncovered a way to potentially solve this problem. And it's a bit deep in the weeds, but essentially they found out, it's kind of interesting for anyone interested in, in electronics, the surface of that sulfite ore, which they call chalcopyrite, is actually an N-type semiconductor. And during oxidative leaching, um, a copper-rich surface forms on that on top of that surface, which is a P-type semiconductor. So mm. if anyone who knows semiconductors knows, when you have a PN junction, you basically have a diode. And that blocks further transfer of electrons, which basically halts the process of leaching. So what they did, what Jetty Resources did, is they found a way to break through that uh, that layer that allowed the leaching to occur. And if this technology is uh, successful and fully embraced by the industry, um, they estimate that we could unlock 8 million tons of additional copper each year by the 2040s, which is more than a third of last year's total global mine production. Wow. Wow. So copper 
is a notoriously hazardous chemical to produce, and those two trillion dollars or so that are that are lying around in big piles of you know what has formerly been been thought of as waste, you know, mine tailings. This new process can mine that waste essentially and produce copper from existing mines. There there wouldn't be as much of a need to create new mines. As Darren mentioned, copper is ubiquitous, used more and more in our cars, buildings, and batteries. And with that, let's dive into our interview today on energy storage. Thanks, Darren. Thanks. Today, I'm speaking with Nate Blair, who works at the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, in Golden, Colorado, outside of Denver. As the name implies, NREL focuses its efforts on basic research and technologies around clean energy. Nate's role there is to model what the electric grid across the United States will look like and what it will cost in the future to meet demand by accounting for changing resources and technologies. That will help us today as we unpack the topic of energy storage systems for the grid, which is becoming extremely important as society shifts to more renewable sources of energy like solar and wind. Nate will help us answer some key questions, including why lithium-ion batteries are becoming the default energy storage option for the grid. What will the future battery storage for the grid look like as renewables eventually dominate electricity production? And how does that future grid handle longer periods of time when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing? We start with a conversation about lithium-ion batteries. We then dig into some of the data and predictions from the Storage Futures study that Nate co-authored. We wrap up the conversation by exploring some of the potential strategies for addressing the intermittency of wind and solar, including other energy storage solutions like hydrogen. All right, Nate, glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for making the time to, to be on the podcast. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about your experience working in grid energy storage, and perhaps you could also define for us what that means in the first place. Sure. I think it's been an interesting progression for storage and in particularly uh, battery storage. We've talk a lot about lithium-ion batteries at the moment, which started back in the 90s all the way in these consumer electronic devices. Industry started putting those into to vehicles. They started to grow them. The costs really came down, and now people are looking at them to provide value to the electric grid, often in conjunction with what has also gotten cheaper in price, which is solar PV technologies. Many of us have been thinking about how do you deal with the variability of solar PV and wind? And there's a number of ways to do that. And historically, battery storage has been one of those ways or energy storage in general, but it has been difficult to build more of that. So we have a a really significant resource of pumped hydro storage in the U.S., and we've looked at compressed air energy storage, and there are other storage options out there. But as you go to longer and longer time durations, we were looking at other options, maybe building more solar and other things. But now with the advent of much cheaper lithium-ion batteries in particular, people are saying, okay, this is now an option for the grid to move energy around, to provide capacity when the sun isn't shining, the wind's not blowing, et cetera. 
It's worth noting here that pumped storage hydropower is a type of hydroelectric energy storage that involves pumping water between lower and higher reservoirs to operate a turbine as it falls back down. Hydropower accounts for about 23 gigawatts of energy capacity. To put that into perspective, we have about 100 gigawatts of nuclear generating capacity in the United States. So it's about a fifth. Compressed air energy storage is kind of like pumped hydropower, but instead of pumping water, these facilities compress and store air underground. When electricity is needed, the pressurized air is released, it expands, and it drives a turbine generator to produce electricity. While there are other types of storage systems, the NREL report covers 15 different ones. We're going to focus on the combination of batteries and renewables because that represents the most cost-effective scenario based on the NREL models. The cost of lithium-ion battery packs in particular have dropped 80% over the last 10 years. Let's get back to Nate. There are a number of electrochemical battery options. Right now, we're focused on lithium ion because there's a cost advantage, but there are a number of people looking at zinc air, sodium batteries, and there's been a number of other ones that have kind of also been in this space as well. They aren't all appropriate for electric vehicles, which is what has in part driven some of the cost reductions in lithium ion batteries. And there's some chemical advantages to lithium typically too. So there's a lot of effort going on there. And that's what has deployed, depends on what day you look at the numbers, but several gigawatts at this point in the US. And there's quite a pipeline of those to be deployed. And not just here, but globally. And I think we are seeing lithium-ion batteries being deployed instead of natural gas peaking plants on the grid, which is sort of one of the potential big markets. When we talk about energy storage, I think a lot of people have in their minds the Duracell battery or the battery that goes in their device. But when we talk about storage for the grid, we're actually talking about a couple of different types of storage services that matter. And I think This is often kind of a revelation to unpack this. I wonder if you might be able to do that. Sure. Well, I think maybe another way to think of it is what are the needs that the grid has, right? If you've uh, ever been in your house and you've had the lights flicker, maybe a a slight change in voltage or a slight change in frequency, there are a lot of resources on the grid to try and make the frequency and the voltage stay as constant as possible. And so batteries, particularly short-term batteries, so less than 30 minutes can be providing some of that where they're kind of trying to raise the voltage or lower the voltage very quickly, faster than I can explain it, actually. So we're talking about very short kind of microsecond type capabilities. And there's ultra capacitors and super capacitors and a variety of flywheels kind of live in that space as well. People have maybe heard of those. So there's that piece and that kind of expands out in kind of a 30 minute or one hour kind of time frame. At the end of the day, though, uh, when you think about, well, how many batteries could be deployed to meet that, it's pretty small compared to the other two needs of the grid that are much larger. And so the second one we would, uh, I think you think about time shifting, right? You're like, oh, well, I'm going to save my solar from the daytime and use it at night, right? That's in a totally normal thing. And we will eventually start to get there as we end up with so much solar on the grid that there are periods particularly in the spring and the fall where there's more solar energy being produced than there is need for that on the load side, right? So that's time shifting. 
But the last one is perhaps even providing more value to the energy storage system, which is capacity. The way the grid works is you pick the peak day of power needs. This is the day when everybody's using the most they can. So it's typically a hot day, maybe a little wind, et cetera. The way the, the grid operators work, they're like, well, we kind of have an idea of what the maximum load is. Then we add something called reserve margin, which is another 10%. So it's like a safety factor. And we have to have that much capacity ready to bring online. And so batteries can sit there charged up for those days and provide that capacity value. And then in a lot of markets, they can get paid for that capacity value. What does the curve look like for battery storage coming onto the grid? I saw recently that we added about 170-something megawatts of capacity worldwide in 2020. That then went up to 2,000 megawatts, I think, in 2021. So there was more than a 10x increase in the amount of battery storage we added to the grid in one year, which is just like mind-boggling. What does the trend look like over the next, let's say, year, five years, 10 years, you know, out to 2050? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think we're looking at like a 5x growth in storage by 2050 in our storage future scenario. So this is not driven by any policy, didn't include the Inflation Reduction Act. We didn't have any of those incentives in there. This is just all kind of economic adoption. And we started with kind of this two-hour battery, then four, and then we start building out six-hour batteries and then eight-hour batteries as the shape of the peak day, day kind of changes. But probably about 100 to 650 gigawatts, which is as these durations increase, it's like somewhere between 600 to over 3,000 gigawatt hours in 2050. So in none of our scenarios did we um, end up uh, economically not building storage. So that's number one. In all cases, we built a significant amount of storage by 2050. And then in some cases, if you had even lower PV costs and even lower battery costs, which might be reflective of some of the incentives that have now been passed, you get even to that higher end of the range where you get even more solar and batteries on the grid than you would if the cost reductions were more conservative in the future or if the cost stayed flat. The other thing that I think is helpful to say is that part of the grid battery that's going to reduce costs the most is the battery pack. So there's a lot of other costs when you put something on the grid. So there's the development cost and the boxes that you put them in and the land that you have to lease or buy and the connection to the grid and all the planning and permitting. Yeah. And so the actual battery pack is less than 50% of the overall cost. Oh, wow. Interesting. But as the battery pack costs come down dramatically, the difference in cost between, say, a four-hour duration battery and a six-hour duration battery on the grid right now is maybe an extra 40% or something. But in the future, the step up to a longer duration in terms of cost will be lower. Uh, And so you might see utilities saying, oh, well, our modeling says we maybe need six hours of battery duration right now, but let's just buy eight hours to be safe, right? So we we anticipate that there might be some overbuilding on, in terms of the duration of the 
of the storage. Storage is tricky because we talk a lot in terms of gigawatts when we talk about solar and wind and other generators, but in batteries, you've got to talk about both the, the power and then the duration. And so the two of those together really create the overall cost. I wonder if you could paint a picture, and it could be a range, if you like, of what do you think the grid and storage system looks like in five years and in 10 years? Like looking forward, what combination of generating resources do we have? How much storage do you think we have on the grid? Are we able to get away from natural gas fired power or nuclear in that period of time? Are we still using those resources? Like paint that picture if you would. Yeah, sure. I think the five-year picture, we don't really even need to do a, a lot of complicated modeling because because there's utility plans that are out there that are quite robust at this point. We can also look at over the last couple of years, what's been installed uh, for the grid. And the bulk of that has been solar PV, wind, and natural gas. There's been a lot of announced retirements of coal plants and some of these other plants on the grid as well. So NREL has just released another study, which I'm not an author on, but it's looking at how do we get to 100% clean energy by 2035 and looked at a whole range of different scenarios and different cost trajectories. There are some where there is nuclear that gets built you know, kind of out towards 2035, or or more typically, we run out to 2050 and look at 100% there. But in our kind of typical set of assumptions, nuclear is quite expensive to build new nuclear. And so the model tends to pick a cheaper mix of options to provide that same kind of overall capacity for the grid. And so I think over the next five years, you can look at what's in the pipeline, what's being planned, what's being developed, and we're headed towards a, a larger and larger fraction of renewables on the grid, solar PV, wind in particular, as the two cheapest. We're seeing a lot of plans for offshore wind as well, and so that's going to continue to develop quickly. It's been slower than the Europeans, and there's some geography reasons for that, but also just sort of a whole lot of other regulatory and other issues around that. So so I think we'll see more and more of that developing. What we have seen to date is for a lot of solar companies have started to put some level of battery storage with each solar plant to help smooth out the operations, provide for clouds coming by, et cetera. And I think we'll continue to see some of those solar battery hybrids. Those are in the pipeline as well. And then we're going to start to see, at least from our modeling, as we get in that kind of five to 10 year range, we're going to start to see the utilities saying, hey, it's going to be cheaper for us to deploy more of these batteries than to deal with, you know, ABC problem on the grid. That's super interesting. What about this problem of longer periods of time where you don't have wind, you don't have solar? How will the grid deal with that in a regime where the generators are dominated by solar and wind? Is Will that just be better, like more batteries or? The way we have talked about it, at least, is, you know, up to about 80% renewable energy on the grid annually. You've got to still got a significant amount of probably natural gas capacity. And that capacity can fill in 
those periods, basically. And so it's a couple of days or a week, maybe, where it's not as windy, it's not as sunny, and you're going to rely on on some of this remaining fossil generation to provide capacity during those periods, it gets more complicated because typically the whole country isn't covered by a cloud, right? So you might be making solar in California and shipping it to Las Vegas, which happens to have a storm coming through or vice versa, right? You've got clouds in San Francisco, but you know, in the Central Valley of California, it's still sunny. So there's a lot of opportunities to share that burden. One of the things you saw in Texas where they had this outage was that Texas isn't very well connected to the rest of the country. And the fact that they're not well connected, they couldn't buy power quickly from the eastern U.S. and imported across transmission lines. Where we really have a lot of questions still is as you approach 100% renewable energy on the grid. That's an area where there's a lot of interest in modeling that and analyzing that, and that's one of the things we're doing quite a bit of. And at that point, you start to see two things are needed, one of which is what we call long-duration storage. So that's more than diurnal or more than 10 hours of storage and probably less than a week or so, right? So that's kind of in that long duration storage bucket. There's another bucket called the seasonal storage bucket where you say, geez, we've got so much solar and wind in the spring and the fall, but you know, the cheapest thing isn't to build enough solar to always meet that peak in the summer. Maybe we can make hydrogen in the winter and in the spring and use that hydrogen either in a combustion turbine or a fuel cell during the peak of the summer. And so in the U.S. in particular, we have these seasonal shifts that people are starting to say, what's the optimum way to to handle that? And then is there a seasonal storage option? And in our modeling, if you achieve some of these green hydrogen cost points, then the models build out kind of these hydrogen or perhaps biofuel combustion turbines that can store hydrogen for months and months and months, and then really use it during these peak periods, which in the U.S. are in the summer. Very interesting. So my last question for you, Nate, is one one that we actually get a lot in comments on our, a lot of people are thinking about this, but the grid build out. So the actual, um, you know, investment in building transmission lines to accommodate increased use of electricity, increased, you know, renewable generators. What kind of projections do you make there? And Will that be a limiter in any way on our energy transition? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, uh, Enrel has looked at uh, you know the there's sort of three grids in the U.S. There's the Eastern grid, the Western grid, and the Texas grid, as I just mentioned, uh, and there aren't good connections between them. And so, if there were really strong transmission connections between them that would lower the overall cost of the transition because you could build, say you could build solar in the sunniest parts of the country and ship some of that power to uh, more cloudy parts of the country. Um, However, building transmission is uh, difficult uh, in the US. And so we also do modeling where we don't build out, where we don't allow the model to build out more transmission, um, at least, large-scale transmission around the country. It can 
still build some local transmission. But, um, and what we find there is um, you achieve the same goals potentially, particularly like if your goal is 100% renewable energy, you can achieve the same goals. Uh, a couple of things generally happen. One is the cost is higher because um, the model would mm-hmm. love. Because you're overbuilding. Yeah. You're effectively overbuilding. Well, no, right? I, I wouldn't say you're overbuilding, but what you're doing is building in a less no. optimal spot. And so what you see I is see. that, you know, uh, the windiest parts of the country are in the Midwest. Um, and what we what we see if we don't allow new transmission to build out is you start building wind farms outside of that area. Um, and and the wind industry has actually done a lot in the last 20 years to say, hey, let's have wind turbines that are optimized for less windy areas. They call those low wind speed turbines. <laughs> Very creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and then we also have the turbines that are in the Midwest that are you know, really built for stronger, more persistent winds. Um, and then we'll, what we'll see is solar being built uh, all across the country, uh, much more so than if you allow the transmission to be built. So you're you're basically building uh, a little more wind, a little less efficient wind, a little less efficient solar, uh, but you're building it in other places, basically. And then the batteries kind of go, uh, in general, we're building batteries around the country, um, you know, particularly close to where the loads are. Uh, and and what you see with without building new transmission is you build some additional battery storage to help keep from overloading the existing transmission grid. So it stores it and then dumps it later when that grid isn't as congested. That was Nate Blair with the National Renewable Energy Lab talking about how battery storage will potentially play a huge role in an electric grid powered primarily by the sun and wind. One key takeaway from the storage futures study that we did not talk about is that the modeled scenarios result in significant decarbonization. Power emissions are projected to drop between 46% and 82% compared to 2005 levels, while the share of renewables to the grid would climb somewhere between 43% and 81% nationally by 2050. That's it for this episode of the podcast. For more episodes, videos, or to sign up for our newsletter, visit climatenow.com, where you can also find links out to interesting information pertaining to this episode. We hope you can join us for our next conversation. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org.